Welcome everyone to the CTSC webinar for October 23, 2017. I'm your host, Jeanette Dopheide. CTSC is the NSF Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about the CTSC can be found at trustedci.org. Today's topic is Incident Response in an Open and Decentralized Network by Berkeley Labs' Ashish Sharma. Before we begin, I have a few items to note. First, this presentation is being recorded. Second, participants are welcome to ask questions during the session using the chat box in the Adobe chat window. Type questions here. And we, ex we have time at the end of the presentation to accept more questions as well. And having said all that, I will hand the microphone over to Ashish. Ashish, welcome. Thank you, Janet, for uh, arranging this presentation. Good morning, everyone. And thanks a lot for uh, listening to this talk. Uh, uh, I would like to keep this talk pretty informal. So if you have a question, feel free to interrupt any time. And uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about a certain slide or certain uh, control we, are put, we have put in place, just let me know and I can go in greater details. The way I designed this talk is to give a high level overview of uh, how we are doing security, how we are dealing with things, what uh, setup we have in place and so on and so forth. So uh, going here, uh, we are Berkeley Lab, we are actually a, a national laboratory which is uh, funded by Department of Energy and managed by University of California. So we are in a, this unique position where we actually get best of both worlds in some sense. And we are actually a unclassified laboratory, so uh, completely geared towards uh, any research open collaboration. Uh, we have a lot of visitors who are coming in and going out of the lab every day. And there are people who would come from any part of the world, be at lab for a week, six months, run their experiment, experiments and go away. So there is a lot of churn in and out in terms of machines, people, and so on and so forth. So Berkeley Lab actually is a conglomerate of a bunch of enclaves as well. We have advanced light source, uh, ESNet is our network provider, and these research facilities are very diverse. For example, ESNet specializes in networking, NERSC specializes in supercomputing, there's molecular foundry. So the ideal is there's a lot of cutting edge research going on at the lab, uh, which brings their own unique challenges, which bring their own uh, set of requirements. Uh, so here is this little thing about Berkeley Lab Network. So we are two class B allocated networks, so about uh, uh, 132,000 IP addresses. There are multiple slash 21s and 22s which we own. They are generally used in our wireless space because uh, uh, surprisingly uh, uh, there were allocations for wireless. They fell short, so we actually got ESNet to allocate more subnets and they fell short and then so on. Uh, we got a little bit more. We are IPv6 and IPv4 networks, so both of them have almost equal parity at the lab. There are a bunch of IPv6 specific subnets or uh, like groups which would only run things on IPv6, especially like I think in our HPC side. Uh, we have both wired and wireless. There are about 13,000 endpoints at given point of time. 
and the number we come up with is based on our data. So this number mostly keeps constant, fluctuates here and there based on if there is a conference, there are new people coming in. Uh, summer when the students are less in the lab, the numbers go a little down. Uh, there's a lot of cloud stuff and uh, sometimes we don't even know what cloud stuff is running until it actually causes a problem or somebody contacts us. Scientific devices, we are 100 gig, about 30, 35 terabytes from last time we measured. Uh, uh, but this number keeps increasing. Uh, it would be a good idea to actually plot per year uh, network uses and how that growth happens. Uh, bring your own devices is a standard norm at the lab. So we don't restrict anybody from bringing anything. So our network connectivity currently is 100 gig, and I'll just put a plug-in for our 100 gig paper. This is actually now, I didn't realize, about two years old, but uh, it gives a pretty good uh, write-up about how we set up a, a large bro cluster. And we actually leverage on a lot of actually work done by uh, other people as well. So this basically summarizes a whole lot of uh, uh, technological challenges, innovations, and how you would run a big cluster to monitor a network. It's a good read, actually. And if you have questions, you can definitely contact us. So again, we are a decentralized network. So we, we do have a central email. We use Gmail as our central email. Uh, and uh, Gmail actually contacts with iron port, which are sitting at the lab. And then people can use. So people generally go to g, uh, gmail.lbl.gov, and they actually have their email access. Our website uh, runs in the cloud, but we run our own lbl.gov, which is centrally managed. But you know, each project can have their own web servers. They can run whatever they want to, uh, and they can go through. Like if they have a conference coming, they can create a conference website, and they can do their own thing. They can even go through clouds to run their own uh, project websites. We do run central DNS, but people at the lab are allowed to configure their own DNS uh, servers too. Sometimes people bring their own home machine laptops uh, and which are actually set up with Comcast uh, name servers and so on. So we do actually give flexibility of however you would like to run things uh, on your own machines. But there is some central. Uh, we use Google Sites. There is a central wiki. But then if you want, you can run WordPress too. Uh, it's just that there would be certain restrictions controls. Only thing we really restrict is that you cannot run your own network. So you cannot actually just buy a wireless router and then create own uh, access point and then let others connect to it. We try to restrict that. Uh, and uh, But we don't manage our clients. So you can run any endpoint if you want. So in short, we are actually a pretty open network. We, and here is this data we collected from uh, POF, Passive OS Fingerprinting. And this is just a random sampling. But you can see this uh, all kinds of stuff runs at the lab. And I mean, I was looking at this list, and interesting is like there is okay, still Solaris 9 or 10 running. There's BSD, there's all kinds of printers. There's all these different softwares or uh, OS and so on. So basically, we got one of everything. That is how we actually uh, project or talk at the lab. But if we got one of everything, that basically means that we have one of every vulnerability too. And uh, there are times where we are like, OK, here is this thing coming up. I'm pretty sure we have one. And so far, we actually kept finding one or more of vulnerabilities if we are looking for them. 
we don't have a border firewall uh, this is a little funny slide because i actually used the mac desktops uh, firewall screenshot and then uh, did my own photoshop uh, setting but it, yeah, i think it, so this network uh, firewall is turned off and the deal is because we run 100 gig links we don't actually even have a firewall to watch that network so physically uh, it's like practically not even pra uh, possible that we can run a firewall on the border and we actually have a uh, mission statement that we should be like collaborating with every country out in the world ev every facility out there and uh, we should not be putting restrictions so we want to keep network open by design so firewall is not a good idea so in short we keep our network open we keep it unrestricted we keep it very easy for access you can bring your uh, device you can actually plug it into uh, any ethernet jack on the lab you can connect it uh, the idea is that you should be able to get on network pretty quickly uh, you can come and you can join the wireless network it's fine uh, we try to keep it at uh, higher cutting edge so we have high speeds you so anything which facilitates science we would try to do that that said this brings its own challenges and uh, one of the challenges is like if you don't manage your clients if you don't have access to them uh, you don't know what's going on so visibility is a big issue and the philosophy is that you should know your network it should be reliable and when you actually are monitoring uh, you should be confident enough on that monitoring setup that you know whatever data i am collecting is worthy of uh, forensic value so then we try to do proactive defense we don't have a firewall but uh, we do use what is called dynamic firewall and i'll go in more details about how we set those up uh, we try to do internal scanning which is very uh, like active and constantly running so the idea there is that let's find vulnerability before bad guys find it so we would run nasius and map uh, john the ripper like anything we can actually like all these different tools which can help us find that little vulnerability uh we'll actually try that and when we say we have one of everything our actually uh work uh, uh mental model is that we have one of everything including one of a compromised machine and the idea is like okay let's have a network monitoring setup in a way that we can find that compromised machine which we don't know of yet in our network and then we try to figure out our uh, logs collection data collection uh, so that we can do accountability like okay who was using this machine when what how did this happen and then there are certain set of controls i will go in little detail about like how do we actually enforce our policies at the lab so we do leverage these data sources bro is a integral part of uh, our labs monitoring infrastructure we try to do a central syslog server where we actually get all these different systems to forward their logs to us uh, previously it used to be voluntary now we actually go and uh, like if you we see that this is a machine which is mostly static at the lab we would actually contact them and make sure that they configure uh, log forwarding to us if they don't we would knock them off the network until they set things up we use netflow for our monitoring we actually get external feeds from us doe headquarters ran isec other places and then we actually also do something called cook data where we would take all these different data sets and then create on our own little data set which actually has lot more richness to it so dhcp logs would give us like okay 
here is this MAC address bound to this IP on this date. Now, our cooked data would actually give the uh, history of this MAC address for its entire lifetime at the lab. So if something is happening, we can know, oh, yeah, yeah, this machine was first active in 2012, then it got inactive for two years, then got back. And that kind of gives us a profile of like, okay, what might be going on? This might be a visiting researcher. Uh, this is a brand new machine. Oh, yeah, we haven't seen this system yesterday. It was only showing up today. So maybe some visitor is coming. We try to get odd data from our LDAP servers, Google, so on. Central Bail is helpful for looking at all the mail logs. ArcWatch is extensively running at the lab, so that that is what gives us visibility into like how many machines are even at the lab. Uh, we try to leverage switchboard data, have reasonable relationship with networking groups. So these are the data sets. But uh, here is actually the diagram uh, of the monitoring setup. It's dated 2012, but not much has changed, except like some numbers are different. So instead of 110 subnets, now I think we have a lot more. But uh, these are like little dynamic things which keep increasing, decreasing. But let me just walk through this diagram in a little detail. So ESNet is our backbone provider. They are internet for us. Everything networking goes through them, apart from a bunch of uh, UC Berkeley connections or a ba backup links which go through Cynic. But primarily, uh, the link between a lab and ESNet is 100 gig. Uh, so the idea which we have in place is that we actually have a tap outside our border router and a tap inside our border router. And the reasoning here is that we want reliability. So like external tap goes away, bro crashes, our monitoring doesn't work. We still have a reliability of monitoring inside our network. But the second thing is that we use active blocking. So let's say there is a scanner which actually hit us, we block them. The tab inside is not gonna see the traffic anymore. Or if we have blacklisted IP addresses which are implemented on external router, we won't see that traffic. So the external tab gives us a visibility of what badness is still going on. And it kind of gives us insight on, okay, yeah, here's this blacklisted IP address. It has been probing us every third day for last one year. So we can characterize those things without actually uh, having those uh, bad actors affect inside the lab. So that's why we have internal and external monitoring. But then we have actually have redundancy too. Uh, the external monitoring has two bro clusters. Internal monitoring has two bro clusters. Then we actually would uh, have standalone bro running, which would be doing very specialized job. And like, for example, scan detection. So we would just have a dedicated uh, scan detection bro box. And that is also two of uh, the same things just for reliability so that we can mon like maintain one box while other can actually uh, keep doing its thing. And then we would run time machine. I'll, I have a couple of slides to show what that is. Uh, we put FireEye as well. FireEye is pretty good for finding viruses, malware, Windows infection. So we are like, okay, they have a lot more brain power to do this thing. Let's just use that for finding all the drive-by downloads, virus infections. And it has actually been pretty good. Uh, internal routers send us our net flows. Uh, then we also have something called internal bro, which does subnet monitoring on certain specialized networks. For example, our business systems would actually run a bro, which would just monitor all the traffic going to business systems. And uh, we would actually run two bro there. One bro is outside a business system firewall and another one is inside so that we can actually see clear text data too. 
but then we run bro in on certain specialized subnets like uh, the subnet which is hosting our mail server iron ports we would have a dedicated bro for watching uh, smtp traffic the subnet which actually does our name servers we would have bro there so there are bunch of internal bros i think 10 or 12 internal bro which specialize on subnet uh we do have syslogs kind of coming from a host and then that syslog data goes to a bro system and then everything actually comes down to acld which is actually our homegrown uh uh network tool which implements acl on the border router so if there is badness which is coming to which is identified by syslog windows log bro fireeye they, each one of these tools talk to our acld listener and then acld would actually implement a block on the border router and this is how we would run a dynamic firewall uh so i am not sure if bro is actually familiar to everybody or not so last next few slides are just my plugin for bro and, and so that people can get familiarity but at at the same time they know where to go and look for more things so bro is an intrusion detection system it's out of berkeley lab now actively developed and maintained by xe and ncsa it provides a, a framework for protocol analysis so bro basically knows network language in simple terms i and you are talking in english bro would actually understand that so bro understands http bro understands smtp bro understands dns and then it's policy neutral so bro does not say that this is bad you have to tell bro uh, that yeah this thing is a violation for example anything which is uh, like let's say wordpress less than 1.0.0 is vulnerable so you actually tell bro that this is vulnerable flag this as vulnerable and then bro would go and implement that policy for you and the way bro literally works is that you have internet you have internal network and there is a tab which sends data to bro and that is what our previous diagram was just little more in details here are some resources for bro uh, there is a very strong and a nice helpful community bro is on like the mailing list is pretty active it's on twitter it's on gitter there is an irc channel you can use try.bro and then ncsa actually has a center of expertise where you can actually contact them and they would help you out there is a bro package manager which is actually pretty good and actually it's very awesome it's almost similar to yum or appget but only for bro and there is a community developing which is actually submitting new packages almost every week now so here is a history it is pretty rich uh, actually academic history and research work uh and it's uh, a good solid tool so it's never hurts for other sites to actually try to experiment with i generally recommend that just install it on your laptop see what it finds for you and but the way bro works is that you have network traffic it goes to packet processing where bro would understand that yeah this is tcp this is udp and then uh there is this protocol dynamic protocol detection so it would actually figure out that yeah http is running on port 1599 so bro would understand that it has its own little programming language which is almost like c but uh, more geared with data structure which are for networking for example port is a data structure ip address is a data uh, thing and then there are tables there are sets so bro does all kinds of different uh, things so it's a network flight recorder it's an intrusion detection system vulnerability management system it has a solid file analysis framework 
which basically means you can extract all the files on the wire and then you can run it in your sandbox. And then there's all this custom logic. So now how do we implement this here at the lab? So this is again a little more magnification of the network diagram. We have tabs inside and outside border router. Uh, tabs send data to Bro. Bro actually would run certain BPF filters like, okay, just send me TCP, UDP, fragment. or synfin and reset and this is for our scan detection system so we would like because we don't want to see uh, full connections they are uninteresting scan detection generally is uh, uh, partial connections or uh, like just sense or only resets or acts or there are all these different weirdness to scan detection so we said okay let's not bombard our 100 gig entire traffic to bro which is doing scan detection just send data with these filters. So we would implement these uh, uh, BPF filters. The data is for external router. Uh, so there is redundant bro, external DMZ1 and tubes likewise internal. And then this traffic would go into the scan detection policy, which actually would do run heuristics on the traffic and see Oh, okay. I, I just looked at the presenter chart. Uh, you can uh, hear now, right? Okay, so uh, so scan detection would run their heuristics on each uh, connection and then would figure like, is this IP bad if this is not bad? If it's a bad IP, then it would actually call another policy called drop and which would actually run a, a script, talk to ACLD and then would do a null route. And then if need be, we can do a permanent blacklist or we can actually run it through a system called catch and release, which was originally written by uh, Jim Belander at uh, Berkeley Lab. And then uh, the entire setup talks with ACLD and actually runs its own, like ACLD would go and talk to uh, the border router and implement. But in this entire process, Bro would actually generate these logs, which would be the notice log, there is a drop log, there is a debug log, there is a ACLD log. So this gives us a pretty solid audit trail on uh, what's bad or like if there is a false positive, we can actually see why that might have happened. So uh, now we are running, bro, we are doing this, but uh, the challenge is like, okay, how do you monitor high-speed network? This screenshot is actually from my tour at NERSC. When I went to their control room, this was there and I just found it fascinating actually, especially with the gray running in the background and all the lights blinking. So, but this is actually, this picture is from our 100 gig paper and I thought it was a useful photo to show. So the, like how do you monitor a 100 gig link or links at such high speed? So the idea is divide and conquer and pay attention to interesting traffic, not to uninteresting traffic. So the traffic actually comes to our Aresta 7504. From that, it goes to 7150. And the reason we actually have two Aresta is because when we were do implementing this technology, uh, the DNAS uh, uh, setup of Arista, which actually does the uh, symmetric hashing was not available on 7504, which was 100 gig compatible uh, app at the time. I think it's 2014, 15 time frame. So the idea is like get all the feeds into Arista 7504, send it to 7150, break it into like multiple 10 gig chunks 
and that data goes into all these different bro clusters. So each one of those box bro node actually sees 10 gig traffic. And then that 10 gig traffic gets divided into uh, multiple bro workers. So each worker actually sees less than a gigabit. Actually, it sees like a few hundred megabits. And this is the way we actually monitor the entire 100 gig. But then we actually use something called shunting. And what shunting does is that when bro finds certain traffic uninteresting, it would go and talk back to Arista and implement an ACL that, oh, yeah, this traffic is uninteresting. Don't send me any bytes except for control packets. And what this actually set up, great details is in the paper, but what this setup does is that this picture would show you. So this blue uh, graph here is actually the original bytes. This is the traffic coming into the lab. And the green part here is actually the shunted traffic. So when Bro identifies a spike, it would tell okay, don't send me these bytes. So the green amount of traffic does not show up to Bro anymore. And the purple bytes are actually the real traffic which Bro keeps analyzing because it does not know or it does not find it hey, interesting. So uh, can you, you can see me? the spikes here actually are about 12 GBPS. And Bro would actually. If you're talking, we can't one, hear you. About 1 GB. So this is how we would actually. Yes? Yes. Uh -huh. Sorry. Um, we're having some issues with your audio I cutting in and out. Um, can you go oh. over this uh, slide again? Uh, can you hear now? Okay. Yes. Uh, and I'll try to speak slowly. Probably that might help. Uh, so. This is actually the shunting slide. Uh, let's just go back to here. So the idea here is that traffic is divided by con divide and conquer. So we would actually have all the bytes going to workers. If bro finds something uninteresting, it actually this red line here shows uh, a message going to Arista that don't send me this uh, traffic anymore because it's uninteresting. And the way it actually looks on the wire is that these peaks are actually the real bytes. And the purple uh, data here is actually the traffic which is interesting to Bro. So anything in green here is got shunted and Bro actually never saw it because it found it as uninteresting. And uninteresting traffic generally is stuff like uh, uh, big file transfers going to Amazon or going to NERSC and uh, it's uh, a, a, like over a, uh, SSH and then Bro saw first few like megabytes and it's like okay everything else is encrypted I am not going to do anything more let's just shunt it but uh, the idea of showing this picture is that uh, you know shunting if to show the effectiveness of shunting uh, that you know you can actually have peaks of 12 gbps 25 gbps but interesting traffic would still be always yep, constant around really good now thank GBPS you at the lab so. Uh, is it better now, Janet? Okay. Uh, so here is the little uh, uh, few slides about how our dynamic firewalling is working. So this this was a scan at the lab. It scanned our slash 16 in 2.59 seconds. So about uh, uh, 40 connections per millisecond, and uh, that was way too fast. And then the uh, uh, 
we actually take about 30 milliseconds to block uh, a particular bad IP address. And 30 milliseconds is fast. We used to do about 200 to 300 milliseconds before. But in this duration, uh, the bad guy already is able to scan about, like, at least touch about 1200 hosts. So this is uh, the problem we would face. And uh, so the idea was like, okay, if we can identify fast, act fast. So, but the thing is that uh, the badness at the lab, like at, on the internet is constantly increasing. This is a picture from uh, 20th of October this year. Uh, this entire uh, red thing, uh, which is S0, about 70% of our traffic is only connections which are attempted by scanners. So they, they just send a SIN, there is no ACK, there is no SYNAC, there is no reset, like they just would pro do a SYN probing. And that's about 75% of our, 70% of our traffic. The SF flag, which you see here on the left side, the purple box is actually the real interesting traffic, which is full connection. And of that real interesting, there can be good traffic and there can be bad traffic, but the entire S0 is, I can say safely is bad traffic. So, so this is generally how the network is characterized. But I said, okay, let's go back and compare it. So I had a picture from February 29th last year. That time, uh, these connections, so we had about 163 million connections in total that day. And 54% of them were clearly scanned traffic. And fast forward to October this year, uh, that 54% actually increased to 70%. And 163 million connections actually went to about 300 million. We do about 300 to 350 million connections a day at present. Uh, so, so the idea was the Scott Campbell actually, like we were talking and he gave me this idea. Uh, and it was like, okay, these things are called uh, ankle biters. They are uh, low hanging fruit. Let's just block them left and right. So, so this is the way we would identify ankle biters. Like, oh yeah, this 60% or 70% of our traffic is literally probes. Let's just block them outright. So, uh, so if we can find badness quickly, we can actually block them quickly. Then scanners cannot come and probe these 1200 machines easily. So this photo actually shows how many IPs we have been blocking every day for uh, since beginning of uh, this year. So on an average, about 100,000 new IP addresses a day. These peaks are Marai botnet actually, where you wake up in the morning and, oh my God, we blocked 400,000 IPs today. And uh, there are peaks. So that this itself, so this gives us a very good dynamic firewall capability, but then it presents its own challenges. And one of the challenges is that how do you keep sustaining blocking so many IP addresses? So we like we don't have infinite budget. So we actually try to use. Uh, uh, we talked to networking. We got. We told them give us half a million null routes. So we got half a million. Then we are like give us another hundred thousand. Give us another hundred thousand. So that was one way to do things. Then we would use catch and release. But the reason last three slides are there is that we came up with something called TCP send port blocking and. Uh, no, actually, we did not come up with it. We implemented something which is TCP SYN port blocking. And what that does is that when we see Marai botnet was scanning on port 4759, we would actually go and block 4759. The problem with ACLD is that if you block that and that is a source port of a legitimate connection, that would also get interrupted and blocked. 
So what TCP send port blocking does it that it would only block port 759 if it sees a send originating from a remote IP, not from the lab. So that way we can actually now statically block these uh, ports which get hammered by this big botnet without interrupting legitimate uh, connections anymore. So that gives us a big flexibility on like, okay, these two ports were active, let's just block that. And all of a sudden we actually, uh, so these peaks and falls are results of this. Like, okay, we just blocked that specific port and next few days we did not actually have to consume 400,000 ACLs anymore. So TCP send port blocking is a good thing to explore. Uh, we do have network visibility with NetFlows. We have like NetFlow sources, uh, 11 internal routers, two wireless. We use Simplicator and the and we use NFSEN, NFCAP for our NetFlow infrastructure. We could use Argus, but NFDump was uh, more friendly. Uh, so here is pretty simple diagram. All the routers send data to something called Simplicator which actually bounces NetFlows to two boxes. It bounces it to the NF dump on the local collector, and then it also bounces NetFlows to another collector. And the idea was to have redundancy, reliability, and then we don't want to interrupt any flow collection. So we would do all of our crunches on the other box. So just in case I am running a crunch with like 60 cores, uh, it should not interrupt or take like process priorities on NetFlow collection. But we have logical components to NetFlow. So we have raw data, but then we create these grappable log buckets for internet traffic, inbound traffic, outbound traffic, ICMP, UDP, honeypots, web server. And so we would collect all these different flavors, like we would classify NetFlows in all these different flavors. And that helps us do long-term searches very fast. Oh yeah, we are only interested in internal traffic or we are only interested in intra-traffic or inbound traffic, so we would just go to that bucket. The cost is that we have to have more storage for redundant, like having the same flow in multiple buckets, but storage is generally cheap. So searches is fast, and the idea is if you can search fast, you will search more. So this kind of helps us. Then we have this uh, like heuristic process, like we would have uh, darknet monitor, low IP scanner, IP, ICMP, subnet monitor, so we would have all these different heuristics which are running on this NetFlow data and that actually uh, uh, helps us do blocking and blocking uh, inter for internal action. We use Najio's big time and that actually helps us monitoring and keeping uh, Really quick, I just wanted to uh, remind uh, next you, you've few got slides about are 10 plug in on full packet capture. So the idea is like, I keep reminding people that, yes? All right, so Time Machine is actually a pretty good tool. If you haven't explored it, explore it. The idea was like, okay, there is a short term, we want to actually retain full packets at the lab. So the goal was six months retention, we want low cost, we want open data format, we were talking to Solaris, they are like, we will use your own, our own proprietary format. Uh, so uh, Vern and his research group actually came up with something called Time Machine which would actually give us full visibility. And the idea there was that most of the traffic is the uh, elephant flows. So for example, here is the encrypted traffic. So that was on wire for about like two terabytes of bytes go on the wire. But if you actually do a cutoff at 500 kilobytes, then this entire traffic can be captured at 110 gigabyte. And that actually gives us a visibility of about 94.97% of the 
traffic. So that basically means that 94.97% of the traffic was less than uh, bytes were uh, basically we captured everything of that particular session and rest not. But if you look at other, so this is encrypted traffic, it's anyways uninteresting. But if you look at all the other flavors of the traffic, we would actually have a very high visibility without actually burning multiple terabytes on the desk. We generally like use about 800 GB a day and we have a very high level of visibility. So it's a full packet capture without actually doing full packet. We do have external monitoring using uh, different feeds. This data all goes into Bro's intelligence framework and Bro takes care of all the monitoring uh, and alerting and blocking and blacklisting. We do have automated searching. So anything which comes in a feed actually spawns a process that goes and searches last six months of data. If there is a finding, it would actually summarize it and then send us an alert. And most of the automated blocking and monitoring is managed by Bro. So here is some uh, like summary of all our monitor and data flows. So Bro actually is used for blocking external. Uh, we use syslog to block external bad actors. We use NetFlows, but we don't use NetFlows for blocking external uh, actors. We make like we specialize NetFlow in finding internal badness. So internal scanners, somebody probing internally, somebody doing funny things. NetFlow is totally geared to do that, and NetFlow gives us a good visibility insight. So we generally use our energy there. Then we actually use Time Machine as insurance policy. So it just preserves all the bytes for us. And uh, uh, the idea with Time Machine is that, you know, if Bro fails, Syslog fails, NetFlow fails, we still have this data source to go and reconstruct most of the event. And we can do that. We can actually, I think, uh, when Heartbleed actually came, we were able to go for a year worth of uh, old SSL data. And we were able to say with confidence that, you know, no, NSA was not scanning anybody before heartbeat vulnerability became public. So all that rumors were basically baseless. So it kind of gives us a little insight into past two. Here is our day in a cyber looks. We have 35 terabytes of data, 300, 350 million connections, 200,000 automated blocks, 100,000 notices, which is a way too many, but it goes to about 200 alarms to humans in email, which is still way too many and uh, unoptimal. And that results in one incident. And we generally get an incident a week on an average or two weeks on an average. And by that, I literally mean we might have a virus infection or a drive-by download. So next few slides just talk about how we would actually deal with certain things. So phishing is a big uh, incident, like a big uh, attack vector. We, we have a lot of concerns with phishing attack. So I'll just elaborate a little on IR process for that and then how we would work with ransomware. So that kind of gives us and it give, would give you an insight on our philosophy. So for phishing, generally the attack is pretty simple. There is a link or there is an email saying give us money or there is a bad attachment. The link actually would be a form which might ask for credentials, would I get redirections which is a form or would result in a download which could be a malicious binary. So all these blue circular uh, uh, boxes here, actually all boxes here, uh, are our monitoring on each step of this particular attack. So if there is a link, we extract URLs. If it gets clicked on, we actually track all the clicks from the URL. If there is a form submitted on HTTP, we would know what username and the password went through. For downloads, we know what are the hashes. 
uh, for attachments, we would extract files, we would run through sandbox, uh, we would use external keys. So this is how we try to do very comprehensive monitoring for phishing, like SMTP data, so that we can find that one fish which is directed to the lab. Uh, and here is a phishing response procedure. So I think uh, you can look at it for sake of time. I'm going to just tell one important thing. So we have capability to actually move the message from inbox to trash. So if we find that there is a phishing email uh, and if somebody reports it or bro identifies it and we are very sure about it, we would go collect the list of people who got it. And then we would try to figure out who clicked on it, who actually gave up credentials or got infected. But for rest of the people, we would actually run this particular tool in Gmail space and that would move the message from inbox to the delete folder, trash folder, so that people cannot like accidentally click on it. And we try to do it within an hour of identifying the fish so that it actually doesn't spread any further. Now, this is for ransomware. We actually went with the likelihood chart and the likelihood chart was like, okay, uh, we have operations group, we have business group, we have science group. So what is the likelihood that it would impact the mission of the lab? And what is our recovery? For the operations, we actually have a standard backup. So if there is a ransomware, we'll just go to a backup and just reinstall fresh. But then for science group, which are unmanaged systems, which is like 95% of the things at the lab, backups are inconsistent and it's very low to high uh, risk of uh, impact to the lab's mission. So we try to teach our researchers of like, uh, make them aware of ransomware uh, uh, threats as well as the consequences. And we try to make sure that if something like this happens, we, so we are like for ransomware, the in short, we are making sure that the awareness at the lab is high. Uh, our IR process is that we actually, for every incident, we would record it in a database and we would uh, follow up for our summary. Uh, the controls we have in place is that we can deny boot an IP address, oh, sorry, a MAC address at the lab. And the volume is like three to 10 a day. And this is generally like, okay, if there is a DMCA complaint or somebody is not forwarding syslog or they are on, we have ACL drop. We have used generally this for identifying Windows XP and then blocking those. Uh, we use DHCP jail so that uh, if you have a vulnerable Java or Flash, we would actually jail you, redirect you to this page, which says you have vulnerable Flash, uh, upgrade it to latest version. And this is a temporary block where users can actually unblock themselves. We do unknown routes. We have a capability of blocking DNS. Uh, so domains, we would sinkhole them. And they can be anywhere from tens to hundreds a day. So these controls actually, the, here's a picture. Like it's not very clear, but this picture actually allows us to, uh, so we have a web page which is accessible to everybody at the lab. It's called onestop.lbl.gov. You can put an IP, MAC, or a domain there, and it would actually show the entire story of blocking or not. So when people don't have network connectivity, they are like, hey, did security block us? They go to this page, or they should go to this page. Help desk generally goes to this page. They would see, yeah, security blocked it. Here is the reason, and then they, they can follow up. So we don't have to get involved in every block at the lab. The help desk takes care of it. Windows groups takes care of it. Other groups take care of things. But, uh, the idea was that we should have a centrally um, managed service which actually gives insight about what security is doing or not doing to your computer in terms of blocking. So in uh, summary, the reliability, like the reality of cybersecurity is there is no perfect protection. So what we try to do is that we try to 
invest in monitoring, invest in awareness, and we try to make sure that uh, we actually have good understanding of what's going on in the network. We always go with this motive, like understanding that miscreants are smarter than us. So they are always ahead of us. They are planning things to uh, outsmart us. And this actually makes us step on our toes. And we're like, okay, how are they going to hack us here? Let's think about this. And then we try to develop protections for that or reduce the risk. For example, ransomware, we try to reduce the risk. So, but the deal is like uh, lab is certain somewhat different from other national labs uh, that we are open, we are unclassified. So the protections which Las Alamos or Livermore have to put in are not what would work at the lab. So we try to actually keep it open. We try to keep it uh, uh, friendly uh, for our guests. But then we actually try to make sure that we are friends with our uh, like lab uh, demographic so that we don't actually have to fight with them uh, because that could result in two, two enemies. There's inside people who are angry at us and then there are bad guys outside the lab. So we try to make friends. These are like uh, Nobel Prize winners. These are top researchers. They already have their, like they are a lot more smart people. So they know how to figure out uh, protections or they can actually bypass uh, our controls. So if we are friends with them, then actually it kind of helps significantly. So uh, if you have questions, this was a little high level. If you have questions about any specific slide, any uh, in-depth conversation, you can feel free to definitely contact me or Thanks, send an Ashish. email to security um, at LBL and that second. would actually get responded. Moving to this email address over. Uh, I'm done, Janet. To this form so that people can click on it as a hyperlink. Um, I just want, while people are typing, and I see a number of people are typing, I just want to go over a couple of orders of uh, matters of business, and uh, then we'll, we'll go over the questions. Um, first, I would like to ask, um, I want to thank you, Ashish, for presenting, of course, and I would like to ask the audience to participate in our survey. Um, you, it's up here right now. You can click on this link, and we'd like to hear your feedback. Um, those of you who are on NSF projects, if you have a new grant um, and you would like to present it, um, We've got some information on how to uh, request to present and uh, other things um, on our website. Uh, you can also just put a request to present in the survey itself, and I will, I'll follow up with you. Um, other things, uh, next month is November. And because uh, a lot of people are going to be traveling in the end of November and uh, in the end of December, uh, we've decided to cancel the November webinar and, and host a December webinar earlier in the month. And so our next presentation is going to be uh, December 11th at 11 a.m. Eastern. And the topic is the state of the CCOE, the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence with CTSC's Von Welch. So uh, I will be sending out notifications to register for that uh, about two weeks before that event. That's uh, what we usually do. And people were typing, but maybe, oh, here we go. Roderick, uh, thanks, Ashish. Can you please elaborate a bit on how you use NetFlow-related tools for incident response or detection? Yes, so primarily NetFlow is used for finding badness internally. So what we would do is what we actually did was we went, we collected NetFlows since I think 2009 or 10. It predates me, actually. So we went through all our historical data and we started actually profiling uh, behavior of 
subnets to see okay how many machines actually are connecting to each other how many systems are talking to each other what's the normal in the lab and then we came up with these interesting thresholds that you know if it's an ssh traffic given few exceptions like networking subnet others don't actually connect more than 21 machines so if that threshold is crossed we actually generate alarm so we actually try to profile these different buckets like what is the icmp behavior if it's more than two subnets we would actually generate an alert so we have these different alerts uh, and thresholds for internal monitoring and that generates alarms like you like certain subnets are not supposed to be connecting to active directory if they are connecting to active directory subnets then that generates alarms active directory servers should only be connected by these sysadmins that would generate alarms so that is how we actually gain visibility and monitoring inside the network and we have a follow up from him uh, did you use nfsdn for the thresholds alarms Repeat that question, please. It's here in the chat. Did you use NFSEN for the thresholds or alarms? Oh, uh, no, actually, yes, yes and no. <laughs> so most of the internal scan thresholds are actually done by uh, post-processing of NetFlow. So we have scripts running, uh, which actually classify data into different buckets. And those scripts actually would, uh, uh, generate these alarms. But then uh, I have uh, NFSense uh, backend plugins which actually uh, generate uh, data. Ashish, can you hear me? Ashish? Ashish, can you hear me? Oh, looks like you're on mute. Can you take yourself off mute? Can you hear me now? Yep, I can hear you. Hello? Okay, yeah, so that generates the data for uh, like alarms. So we use NSN plugins and the back end most of the time. Thanks. It looks like we're getting a couple more questions coming in. Uh, here we go. Another one from John. How do you manage the human side of incident response with your users? Do you distribute the escalation of the incident response to the various research enclaves? Do you have a separate process for non-emergency requests versus incidents? Yes, we do. Uh, so. Uh, for research enclaves, like for example, ESNet, they have their own security team, they have their own infrastructure. NERSC has similar thing. So, but what we do at the lab is that depending on incident, we would actually pull people in and out of our group. For example, if it's a phishing related thing, big thing going on, we actually have the email team become part of the incident response team. And they would work closely with us. We don't really hesitate in sharing all our findings with our email uh, sysadmins, like, hey, uh, here is the story, this is what is going on. If we have a SSH compromise, we would actually get the HPC group uh, integrated with the security team. And then for low-hanging stuff like virus infections, which are like their drive-by downloads, which are very much there, pre-infected machines which come to the lab for from some visitor, uh, our Windows uh, Mac PC support group actually is trained to deal with them 
uh, on their own. So we try to keep a lot of trust with those guys. We would uh, actually talk to them. We would keep them up to speed. But uh, we train them to deal with uh, certain uh, characteristic infections, like virus infections are there, or somebody actually has a printer which got compromised. So we don't actually, like security team doesn't really go and say, okay, do this. They are trained to configure that particular printer or that particular scientific device to enable firewall, make it secure, so on and so forth. So in core, we are about six or seven people in the security team, but depending on different kinds of incident, we grow or shrink. Uh, if something is really bad, we would actually go from uh, like we would cross every, uh, every T and like dot every I. We would make a forensic image. We have N case. We have DD. Uh, so we would do all that. Uh, sometimes we would actually confiscate a computer and then we'll just keep it. And if the researcher needs something, we would actually get them new hard drives. In fact, even new computer if need be. So depending on how serious the things are, uh, our behavior changes. Uh, most of the time, we try to make sure that our extended teams are capable and competent enough to just deal on their own. And I've got a question uh, earlier in the chat from Ian. How are you addressing the rising level of encrypted traffic on the network and its impact on detection capabilities? Yeah, that is a big problem we have. Actually, I did, I, I tried to calculate one day, and this is just one day random sample, but I think uh, uh, about 87% of our traffic was HTTPS uh, in web, and that was pretty big. So we have tried to do multiple strategies. For example, in email, uh, we, phishing is a big, big threat for labs. So uh, we just don't do TLS. That means we are bad citizens of internet, but it's okay. We wanted visibility in our, our email system, so we don't do TLS negotiation at all. We want clear text traffic. If TLS becomes very critical, we are going to have iron ports bounce all those emails to another box in clear text, and we would make uh, sure that we have visibility there. For other traffic, uh, what we have done is we have, actually that was one of the reasons we actually started making syslogging mandatory. So that all these different uh, machines at the lab, if we see their syslog, even if there was an encrypted connection bro did not see, we still have access to what happened to on the machine. We have tried uh, strategies where we actually ask for HTTP, uh, like uh, access and error logs from web servers. And for critical web servers, they are required to keep them for a while. Uh, if need be, we will go and we will actually look at that data. So we keep trying to do this. One of the like research from research angle side, we actually are experimenting with OS query and bro, where we would run OS query on these different endpoints. And or we will encourage people to run that and make OS query send us data from uh, these different machines. So if this is an encrypted connection, uh, bro can talk to the uh, endpoint and say, okay, can you tell us what process was actually using this particular non-standard traffic? So we try to do those things. For SSH, uh, Scott Campbell from NERSC actually wrote something called instrumented SSH, which is in like theory, uh, kind of like a Trojan SSH. It would record what's going on that SSH session and it would send the data to bro. So even though SSH is completely encrypted, we run instrumented SSH on our HPC box or like cluster management nodes and login nodes. And that gets us a very good visibility into compromise account. 
So there are these little, little different strategies for per case basis. But yeah, encrypted traffic is a concern. Great. Um, we've got a few minutes left. If anyone wants to ask any final questions, I'll just sit. Great. Ian says, thanks, Ashish. Do you require syslog log logging for BYOD devices then? No, actually, it's a very complicated algorithm. What we do is we rely heavily on ArtWatch data. So uh, if you recall, I said that, you know, we can actually, in our cook data set, we can say what was the life story of this particular uh, MAC address. So we know that this was active two months ago, six months ago, how often it has been seen on the uh, wired network. So that way we can characterize that this machine has been on the lab network for greater than 90% of the time. Now it doesn't matter if that was a laptop or a desktop or a server. If we can say, we, we, when we figure out that it has been active for greater than 90% of the time, they get an automatic email that you are required to syslog, here are the instructions. And they get, I think five, no, three of those email and then one warning email. And in the fifth one, they actually get knocked off the network. So this is a month long process, but uh, uh, that helps us actually get a very high level of visibility into the syslog forwarding. And we actually get emails from our users like, hey, this is a laptop. Why are you asking my laptop to syslog? And then we'll just send a friendly look. Is, note, look, is your laptop being in the lab for greater than 90% of the time? And then people are like, oh, yeah, huh, it's true. Okay, let me just configure it. Great. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap up today's session. And as Ashish said, uh, you can contact him at security at lbl.gov. And for those of you who have attended the presentation, please fill out our survey uh, linked right here. Uh, we appreciate the feedback. And Ashish, I want to thank you so much for presenting. Um, this has been very enlightening. And uh, I hope our, our the member projects and, and members of uh, our People who have been following CTSC take, take some of your advice and start implementing it at their own locations. Uh, th thanks for the opportunity and thanks for all the patience and listening. Any questions, definitely feel free to contact us or in fact, even uh, Janet knows how to reach out to me. So I think uh, we'll be more than happy to talk further. So. Yep, great. Yes, thanks I know. Thanks a lot, everyone. Yep, thank you. I know how to find you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, everybody, I want to thank you for joining this presentation, and I will stop the recording.